given the gift this morning of hearing, given the gift of listening, given the gift of seeing, that you would make us uh, able to fully receive that which you are wanting and willing and, and acting to give this morning. Lord, I pray out of Ephesians 3 that we, that you, Holy Spirit, would be active in our inner being to strengthen us that Christ might dwell in our hearts through faith, that the Messiah might fully dwell in our hearts through faith, and that we would be able to understand with all the saints how high and how wide and how deep is the love of God, the love of Christ, that we may be filled to all the fullness of God. Lord, this, this is my prayer, that we would be enabled to encounter something supernatural, something outside of ourselves. We're not just asking for wise words. We're not just asking for things that we can understand with our minds. We're asking for things that go beyond our understanding. We're asking for things that go beyond our ability to comprehend. We're asking for supernatural power to be released in this, in these moments that would change us and that would live in us and would be reproduced out of us to change others. We ask you for this. We take the things that you said about the going forth of the seed very seriously. Lord, we pray right now that you would protect us against the hardness of heart that would allow the enemy to come in and steal the word from us. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would plow down deep into us so that the seed does not just begin to sprout, but gain no deep root and immediately die away. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would uproot wrong ideas, that you would, that you would uproot lies, that you would uproot the... the, the the thought patterns of our culture, the thought patterns of our family histories, the thought patterns of, of the, the world around us that would choke out the power of the word of God that's being planted. Make us ready. Yes, that in Jesus' name, amen. Um, I mean, I'm sure you know that the uh, the parable that I was referencing in my prayer that Jesus gave about the different types of soil. But I think any time we come to the Word, we need to we need to be looking at our hearts. We need to be saying, "Are we? What am I prepared soil? Am I ready to receive?" And Jesus was being very clear that there are people who can sit under the teaching of Jesus himself and have the word come. And, and you know, there's some people that are so hard that the word just kind of bounces off of them and never even gets any purchase at all. And the enemy comes and just takes that away. And the word of God has no effect on them whatsoever. But Jesus said, there's another group of people that, 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 uh, or another heart posture, I'll say it that way, where the word comes and it, it goes in and it begins to do things. It begins to grow Bible says that you receive the word with joy, but it, the, the root never goes deep. 
It only goes an inch deep. So something begins to sprout quickly. Wow, there's fruit. But then as soon as bad stuff starts to happen, the thing just dies because the root never went deep. It never went down into the depths of who you were. It never began to shift the soil of your heart in a real way. It was the, we have, you know, an inch deep, but anytime anything bad comes along, bye-bye any growth that we saw. We just lose it. And then he said, there's a third heart posture, which is, which is the, the seed comes and it goes in and there's even a root, but it's crowded out by other plants, weeds that are growing around it. And I saw this firsthand when we were in Mexico last time. The missionaries there were trying to um, uh, uh, start a business that would be both beneficial to the orphanages they're connected with and also um, raise money for their ministry. And uh, they were growing this little plant. I forget what it was called, but it's a plant that can that that w- when it's fully grown, if you grind if you grind it down, it it has like every nutrient the human body needs. Like it's an amazing. I don't even remember what it's called, but but uh, but it's it's it, yeah. What? It's a celery. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I don't remember what it's called. I can't remember right now. But anyway, it's a cool word, but I can't. That's going to drive me nuts now. But they had planted it and they wanted to do everything organic. And so they had, they had used like, uh, they, you know, they, they planted it in this field and they had this Mexican farmer guy who was also a pastor who was doing all the planting for them. And it was going to looking like it was going to go really well. But, uh, but, uh, when the rainy season came, the natural plants of the field had just, I mean, just jumped up in like two weeks to like a foot, foot and a half, sometimes three feet, depending on where it was in the field. And these little plants who grow better in dry climates than they do in wet uh, were struggling. And we literally, we spent an entire day just trying to weed around these little plants. <laughs> and, and we're pulling out, the little plants were about this tall in the field and all the weeds around them were at least, you know, they were like this tall, like two and three feet tall. So we're just digging through and like, we had this kind of idea like, Hey, we planted them in a row. So just be looking along and we had, we, we had, we knew what the plant looked like. And so we're just digging down and we're just trying to get, and we're trying to pull out these other gigantic plants without uprooting this little guy that's here in the middle. And it was really hard. It was really, really difficult, and um, and we spent hours and hours and hours just <laughs> walking along on our hands and knees through like this emerging jungle, just like <sighs> you know, going, oh god, I know how I don't know how many bugs are around me right now, or you know, and might run across a snake of some kind, like you know, we just had no idea. It was real missions work, man. I mean, we did a lot of we did some seriously hard work that trip. We also poured a concrete floor. With no machines. The only machine we had was the mixer. Oh, you had a mixer. We had a mixer, which was glorious. Praise the Lord. But, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, no, we had a mixer, but the, but the rest of it was all done completely by hand, and none of us had ever done concrete work ever before. And so we're just like, it was, that was really fun. I had one guy that got heat stroke that day. It's just, <laughs> I kept telling him, dude. Go sit down. You need to take a break. You need to be drinking water. Ah, we got work to do. And he just got redder and redder. And I was like yelling at him 
go sit down. Finally, he, he went and sat down and he was just like, and his head was like, you know, and for the rest of the, like, we went to this amazing restaurant that night and he just had his head on the table like, oh, you know, he's drinking Gatorade, but he couldn't eat anything. Anyway, it was a, uh, it was quite a day. So <laughs> listen to your pastor. That was the, that was, that was the, uh, that was the lesson of that particular thing he's he's the guy that does our youth at the church and he's an unbelievably hard worker um but uh but he needs to pay attention when his leaders tell him hey take a break no no no, we gotta just let me finish this one thing no go sit down and drink your entire bottle of water right now He didn't do it. <laughs> anyway, he apologized to me later. I should have listened to you. It's like, I know. <laughs> All right, we're in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. But the fourth posture of the heart is the ready soil. It's the soil that's been plowed. It's the soil that receives the seed. The seed grows deep and that there's no weeds around it to choke out the growing Seed and the picture of the word of God. We got to understand this. There's multiple pictures of the word, but this is my favorite one because what the word of God does is it enters into the human heart and then it begins to grow. And not only does it 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 grows and it and it cha- and it spreads out and it changes the environment of the heart, changes the soil all around it, and it grow. But it also grows up out of the soil and enables itself. To go from you into others. The word of God is not finished with its work until not only are you shaped by it, but you're also putting out seed so that others, through the word of God, can actually be replicated out of you in the life of other people around you. Christian and non-Christian alike, that the power of the word of God is now shaping you, but out of you, shaping others as well. Does this make sense? Yeah. Okay. I'm not sure why we needed to go there, but we did apparently. So there we go. Today we're on chat. We're on uh, Matthew 5, chapter 8, or verse 8, sorry. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Uh, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Do we have any... Any, uh, any, how are you feeling about the, this, this time that we've been spending in the word? Like, what, what, you, what, give, give me just nuggets from like last week or one of the other times that we hung out together. Nobody remembers anything. Okay. Well, that's good. We're going to go back to verse one. No, I'm kidding. Come on. <laughs> um, well, like, all of my other notes are in my last journal because I just started this new one. But, like, for me, it's just been really good to, like, go deeper into the Beatitudes because, like, I even did Matthew, the whole book, in Teen Bible Quiz. And, like, I just, you know, I was memorizing it for the competition aspect yeah. of it. Um, but, like, so going deeper into it has really just been, like, eye-opening to just, like, even though it's blessed be the blessed be the blessed. It's, like, even though it's super repetitive, it's still really powerful. So yeah. that's something that I've 
Well, and you begin to see the beauty and the genius of Jesus of Jesus uh, preaching and teaching, because the Beatitudes build on one another. It becomes a system of thought. Uh, and I, we were, I was, I did a class last Saturday. Every once a month, we do what we call intensives at Fremont, and uh, and and it's where we really drill down deep on one. Uh, idea, one thought, like one biblical topic. So we've done, we did one on spiritual gifts. We did one on end times. We did one on, on prophecy and prayer. We did one on finances. We've done one. So, we, so every month we just, I just kind of say, Lord, what do you want to go for? And we just go for it. So we did one on personal evangelism. You know, we, we've done a bunch. Um, we've tried to do, we haven't, we've tried to do one every month this year. And uh, or every month in 2017, um, and uh, we got uh, close to that. But uh, but uh, this last one was how to study the Bible and enjoy it, and it was really about how to go deep with Bible study, about how to how to begin to have a relationship with your Bible, because a lot of Christians don't, you know. And so we had, you know, folks that came and, and you know, we, we, uh, we did that together. And one of the things that I said to them was, um, you know, you have to go slow. You really do. You have to go slow and you have to go and you have to chew on things. And, you know, there's, there's, there's a good thing. Reading, reading through an entire book of the Bible in one sitting is something I would recommend to everyone. But that can't be your regular mode of study. Then when we study, we have to go slow and we have to drill down deep. And, you know, we really have to go after it. And it's really important that we get that, that, we, that, that there's so much here. There's a wealth in the word. There's something else I want to say about that, but I can't remember what it was now. Um, nope, it's gone. Okay, anyway. Um, so yeah, give me one thing without looking at notes. One thing, one just phrase that you have been thinking about from the Beatitudes. I'm trying to think of which one. Oh, yeah, the the blessed be those who mourn verse. That I remember that week like specifically was just really like I because for me I'm always like um, I push down like my feelings and I never like or well I'm working on it but like it's hard for me to like deal with stuff yeah. and so. That verse really hit home for me, so I was like, you know, we talked about it for like two hours, just that one verse. So it was yeah. just like really, yeah, it was really good. So. Yeah, that's, I mean, we're on verse eight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> so now that, that's why when I taught through this stuff at my church, we called this series Mountain Crawling because it's the Sermon on the Mount, but we're not really climbing. I mean, that would be an exaggeration. We're just going to crawl through slowly, just, you know, hands and knees <laughs> because that's, that's all the more you can do. And But this stuff is so rich. And that idea in particular, the, the thing about the Sermon on the Mount that I love is how countercultural it is. It's just Jesus flying in the face of the way we normally think about the world and saying, it's wrong. Here's, you think wrong. The kingdom of heaven thinks this way, and the kingdom of the earth thinks this way. And, you need, and, and he's changing our DNA. 
changing our paradigm. Is everyone familiar with that word paradigm? I get yelled at for using big words. I don't feel like that's a big word. Paradigm. At least I didn't say paradigmatic. I mean, come on. But paradigm. Is it? Is anybody? Are you familiar with that word? Okay. A paradigm is a way we see the world. It's a. It's the lens through which we view the whole world. That's our paradigm. It is our. It is the 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 context of our brain activity. I don't know how else to say it. There's a typical example. <laughs> and well that and that's the thing is most people share one paradigm if they are spending like you guys your paradigm right now is i mean one of the paradigms that you operate in right now is master's commission and that shapes the way you think and it shapes the way you react and it shapes the way that your brain works and that's fine there's nothing wrong with paradigms Unless the paradigm is messed up and broken. And we need to be able to step away from our paradigm and examine our paradigm. We need to be able to pull that lens, you know, pull that lens away from our eye and look at it and see how it's shaping the way that we understand the world. Because if we cannot do that, we will never understand the other guy across the street who has a completely different lens from ours. We need to be able to look at our own lens, realize that everyone in this world is wearing different lenses. They are viewing the world through their own grid, through their own paradigms, and until we can step away from our paradigm and, and try, it's very difficult to do, because the whole point of a paradigm, the whole idea of a paradigm is, if, is kind of things that go without speaking. It's the assumptions you make about the world that you don't actually think in your head, you know, I feel this way about the world. You, you, most of the time when a paradigm is running, when a lens is in place, it, ex it works precisely because you can't see it. And the, the Sermon on the Mount is the most powerful paradigm shifting sermon in the world and it works for every paradigm the only paradigm that is not shifted by the sermon on the mount is the kingdom of heaven paradigm every other paradigm is going to be shifted every other culture is going to be confronted every other way of seeing the world is going to be you know we're the sermon on the mount is going to get in its face and say you're not looking at the world correctly and that's why jesus preached this this whole thing was Jesus standing in front of the people of his generation, telling them the way that you think about God is incorrect. The way you think about the Old Testament is incorrect. And he was giving them a brand new way to look at the Old Testament. A brand, of course, they didn't call it the Old Testament then. They just called it the Testament. It was the only Testament. We didn't have a New Testament yet. So it was just the, you know, it was... The way you read the word of God is incorrect, and Jesus was confronting them with that. But it still confronts us today in beautiful and powerful ways. So we're going to go after this one. I, I think, maybe, I've said this every week, but we may be able to get more than one done today. Okay, so blessed are, the life of God exists for the 
pure in heart, for they shall see God. There's something we need to understand about this idea of purity of heart. I want you to give me, somebody give me, your first thought of pure in heart. Go. Okay, clean. Next. Cleansed, repentant. Keep going. I think like loving people, no matter like their faults. Okay, keep going. Come on, come on, come on. Pure of heart. Okay, we're done then. Okay. <laughs> Clean and not dirty. You're just giving me, you're just, you're just defining your, okay. Here's the truth. Clean is is actually wrong. Um, <laughs> I love you, but it's wrong. Here's here's what the word. No, I, I exactly. <laughs> Here it is. Here's here's what Jesus was saying. Okay, purity. Think about the word pure. Okay, when you say this water is one hundred percent pure, then we might think clean. But what it really means is there's nothing in this cup but water. Do you see the difference? How they're different but also the same? <laughs> because it is, we call a we call water that has nothing in it but water clean. Yes. But clean has different dimensions to it than pure. Pure means without mixture. That's what the, the Greek word that's used here means, without mixture. There's only one thing there, pure gold. Think about pure gold. What would you say? What, what's in that bar? Gold. Just gold. Okay, that's the picture. That's the picture. So this is a heart without mixture. Now what is, think about that for a minute. A heart without mixture. This is a heart that has one design, one desire, one reality. We use words like single-minded. We use words like wholehearted. See how much different those, those phrases are from clean? Because when we say clean, we automatically think without sin, right? I mean, that's, that's where we go. And that's where almost every preacher I've ever heard preach this goes immediately. Blessed are the pure in heart. So we shouldn't be looking at this. And we shouldn't be looking at that. We shouldn't be thinking about this. We shouldn't be thinking about that. And the truth is, we shouldn't be looking at those things. And we shouldn't be thinking about those things. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Use a different passage, a passage that actually says those things. Use that passage to preach that point. Don't use this passage to preach that point because this passage says something completely different. Thank you very much. And then those of you that are in this room that are going to be teaching the word of God, I want to smack you awake right now. Every time you go into the word of God, you need to go with a, a cleaned out mind. Do not assume that that verse means what you thought, what you think it means. Get into that verse, read the context, read commentaries, get down deep into, you know, look at the Greek, 
and pay attention to what this verse actually meant to the people who read it in the first place. What did Matthew mean when he wrote down the words pure of heart? And here's something that we don't know. We don't know if Jesus preached in Greek or if he preached in Aramaic. We don't know. The language that everybody used when talking to one another back in the day was not Greek. The language that everybody used when talking to each other, if you were talking to your friends in, uh, you know, if you lived in the same place and time as Jesus and you were talking to your buddy, you would speak to them in, in Aramaic, which is a sister language to Hebrew. It's like pigeon Hebrew. It's, a, it's you know, it's like a cheaper form of, of Hebrew. It's not high Hebrew. It's like, you know, kind of dirty Hebrew, whatever you want to call it. But that's, but that's what it is and that's what it was. And that was the language of... If you talk to little kids, you'd speak to them in Aramaic. That's the language they spoke because that's the language people spoke around at home. Greek was a business language. It was the language that, you know, if you go to Europe right now and you're anywhere in Europe, the language that you, wherever you go, it's actually English. Oh, really? the, the, yeah, the language that most people in Europe know is English. They'll know a little bit of English if they, if they know, and then they'll have their their first language. Okay, that's actually the language of the world. Thanks to our American, you know, the way we are. Right? Okay. English is the language of the planet right now. It's the it's the business language of the planet. That was Greek at the time. Greek, everybody spoke Greek. Thanks to Alexander the Great, everybody spoke Greek. That was the business language. That's what if you wanted to do business in the wider world, you would do business in Greek. Okay, and so the Gospels were written originally in Greek, but we don't know if Jesus spoke in Greek. In fact, he probably didn't. He probably spoke in Aramaic, which means that when we get to English, we are, we are two translations out from the original thing that Jesus said, which is why it's absolutely important that we know what it says in the Greek, because he was already probably translating from Aramaic. Are you with me? translations of the New Testament? No. Even if there were, the original written language of the New Testament was Greek. But what Matthew, what, what, what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were doing was they were writing, they wrote in Greek, Greek, but they were thinking back Aramaic. And, and some of them, I mean, uh, you know, John was there, Matthew was there, but Luke and Mark were both writing down things that were told to them by people who were there. They didn't see these things firsthand. <coughs> now, Luke saw all the stuff that happened in the book of Acts firsthand, or most of it, but he did not see the ministry of Jesus firsthand. He was talking to Peter, who was telling him, or you know, one of the other disciples, who was telling him what happened and telling him what Jesus said, and he was writing this stuff down. Okay, Matthew and John were both there, and so they both, but they were both probably writing in Greek. What they had heard in Aramaic, it's very, very likely that Jesus did not preach in Greek. Maybe he did. But we don't know. The point is, these kind of little shades of meaning are important and we need to dig them out. And don't assume you know what a text means. That is the biggest mistake that preachers make. Is that they will preach from a text that doesn't really say what they're trying to preach. Now, what they're trying to preach might be a biblical idea, 
but you just shouldn't use that text to preach it. Okay, for instance, how many of you have, you, have ever heard? Um, oh, I can't. I mean, there's probably there's 20 different things coming to my brain right now. I'm trying to think of what the most. Oh, uh, some of the most obvious ones would be. Um, well, I'm going to really ruin everybody today. And let's just go after Jeremiah 29 11, shall we? That's fine. Okay. That's the first thing Nathan destroyed us with last year. Oh, really? He's like, hey, you might like this, but this, this wasn't actually for you. Oh, like, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremiah 29.11. It's a verse that everybody had in their cards when they graduated from high school and everything. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? <laughs> no. <laughs> because if you look at the context of the verse, this is a prophetic promise to the people of Israel for the second coming of Jesus. That's, that's what it is. He's telling Israel to trust him. I know the plans I have for you, that you is specific. Plans to prosper you, not, not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. He was talking to Jews in Jerusalem about the millennium. Where are you? Not in that verse. Okay? Unless you're Jewish. You're not that Jewish, bro. Okay? And we'll be around in the millennium, which may be, I mean, but anyway, let's just move on. So the idea is, okay, however, does that mean that every every time you've read that verse and been encouraged by it is, is crap and you should just throw it away? No. No. Because we serve a God who does not change and we serve a God who's no respecter of persons. And the, so we read that verse and the question isn't, what's God saying to you? The question is, what's God saying about himself? Because what God says about himself is true no matter who you are. And when we see a God who is saying to his people, trust me, I make plans for my people, and they're good plans, then we can take that and we can say, I serve a God who is lovingly thinking about my future and I can trust his intention toward me. Does that make sense? Okay. Which is what I think most people take out of that verse anyway, but you can't say, God, you have a plan to give me a hope in the future. Well, no, not necessarily. I mean, not let's be, let's be careful. You might get run over by a car tomorrow, but the point is, God has lovingly looked into your future and made plans for you. And the thing is, you're going to be blessed. And the, you know, our, 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 our final end is a great, beautiful thing. But if we're standing on this verse and saying that I'm invincible until the, no, you're really not. And, 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 and I don't, and it helps because when bad things happen tomorrow and you were like, what about Jeremiah 29, 11? God's going, I wouldn't, that wasn't you. I love you. <laughs> okay. And pastors love to take verses that sound like they mean something and twist them 
to mean to and and preach out of that verse and be like and 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 now they may be they may be preaching a biblical idea they're just using the wrong verse to do it okay and when people say blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see god do you want to see god you better stay pure and they interpret pure as moral purity that's an incorrect interpretation of the actual text because what Jesus is saying here is single-minded, wholehearted. That's a better interpretation of the verse than moral purity. Now, is a single-minded and a wholehearted person going to be morally pure? Yes. You better believe they are. But it means a whole lot more than just moral purity. Because you can have all of the don'ts checked off on your list. I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't go with girls that do. Check, check, check. <laughs> okay? That's my favorite That's my favorite moral purity statement. My dad used to say it all the time when I was a kid. <laughs> I, I, there you go. Check, check, check. I'm, I'm pure of heart. When am I going to start seeing God? Eh, wrong. Jesus was saying, where's your focus? Where's your focus? To what are you giving 100% of your energy? That's his question. That's his statement. To be a person who gives their whole heart without mixture. Okay? How many of you love a particular sports team, and by loving that sports team, hate another particular sports team. Anybody? Anybody in the room? There's like, there's like one sports team you adore, and because you adore them, you hate their rivals. Anybody? Well, yeah, but that doesn't count. I'm talking about there's a team, you are, you are for that team, like you, like, okay. So, Okay, that's a very good example. That's a good example, okay? I'm a Wolverine guy, and I hate Michigan State, right? Isn't that that's the, that's the thing? Oh, or the other way? Oh, that guy. The other guy. Oh, yeah. Wolverines are Michigan State. No, they're not. No, no they're not. Wolverines are Michigan. I, think, uh, if, I don't even know. Uh, Michigan State is the green and white one, and Wolverines are the, are the, the blue and gold. Anyway, okay, whatever, fine. I don't care. I, I'm, just, I'm not a sports person. I'm just trying to find a good analogy here. Okay, let's say you are, you know, you are totally Team Jacob. Oh my God. And you hate Edward. Okay? All right? Okay. Okay. Oh, when? He said a couple years ago, and he said, if I would have showed this five years ago. That's true. Yeah. That's so true. He would have been run out of town on a rail. Oh, I love that's hysterical to me. Anyway, so okay, so okay. Here's the idea. The idea is because you are 100% for a thing, everything else just falls to the wayside. It affects the way that you look at everything else. It affects the way that you operate in every other way. There's this beautiful quote by Augustine, which I'm never going to remember it correctly, but the idea is 
What? Is it St. Augustine? Yes. Okay. Yeah, St. Augustine of Hippo. I was like, who the heck is Augustine? He's one of the greatest Christian writers of all time. He had a couple of wonky ideas, but but he was a good guy. And, uh, and I love a lot of his things. But in this one particular phrase just rang so real with me where he says, basically he says, I'm going to have to find it because he just says it so beautifully. I'm going to have to look it up. I'm sorry. Forgive me, but I'm going to have to do it. Uh, here we go. Here we go. Here it is. He loves thee too little, who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. I know. Uh, we'll, we'll unpack it, but I want to read this. He lo- he's speaking to God. Oh God, he loves thee too little, who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. In other words, if you love God and your wife, but not, then, then you're not loving God enough. Because it should be that I love my wife because I love God. It should be I love my children out of the overflow of my love for God. That is a radical, radical statement. It isn't God and your friends. It's your friends because God. Especially in this, in our culture, the church culture in the United States of America bows down at the altar of family, like, all the time. I feel like there's some serious mixture in the church, of, in, uh, in the church of our culture. I feel like this is a giant paradigmatic problem. That means you have a problem with your paradigm, Okay. <laughs> That we love our families alongside God and not because of God. You might be willing to say, I love Jesus more than I love my wife or my kids. But that's wrong. Your love for Jesus, all of your love should be for Jesus. And because of who I, because of who God's called me to be, which is a husband and father, My love for Jesus exalts my love for my family. It stirs my love for my family. And in loving Jesus, I have to love my family appropriately. Because it's my first vocation. After being a worshiper and a lover and a follower of Jesus, my next vocation is being a good husband to my wife a husband that loves her as Christ loves the church. And my next vocation after that is being a good father to my children. And yes, that's the correct order, by the way. Spouse first, children second. I know that's another one that everybody gets wrong, but that's the Bible order. That doesn't mean you love your... I mean, it's, it, it, this is... I, I love saying these things because... I get people that get like shocked and they're like, how could you say that? I can't believe you would say something like that. And it's like, wake up. If I, 
by loving my wife, I am loving my children. My children need a father who's going to love and take care of their mother. And it is the right thing to do to love her first and love them second. It's the right thing. That is how I love them. By prioritizing my relationship with my wife. Does this make sense? And this is also how I love my wife, by prioritizing my relationship with Jesus. Everybody with me still? Or are you ready to walk out? What do you mean? I am not going to be a good husband unless I've spent time in the Bible. Yeah. Unless I've spent time with Jesus. So he gets first cut. And I will say this to you. I love my wife much more because Jesus is filling my heart with his love for her. But my 100% of my affection belongs to the Lord. I don't want to be a person who has one altar here that is the Lord's and one altar here that is my wife or my children or my job or whatever else. You name it. You can. There's a million and one altars that we love to put up, we love to put there. That's not what we're supposed to do. We are given to be lovers of one husband. That's the Apostle Paul said, I, I, I betrothed you to one husband, and that is the Lord Jesus. And, and that's who we are. We need to be a people who are without mixture, a people who are living out our lives in actual purity, which means that our whole hearts, our whole attention, our whole desire is pointed at Christ. Are you with me? And that our love for others flows from that fountain. But that's the fountain, is our love for Jesus and his love for us. One passion, one desire, one longing. When there's nothing more important than Jesus, that's purity of heart. Blessed are the single-minded, the wholehearted. They shall see God. It goes that we have to get this. So that's what he's saying when he says he loves thee, God. God, if I love anything next to you, I'm not loving you enough. But if I love things because of you, I'm going to love you more and them too. I love Augustine. Brilliant. We need to be living one life, not multiple lives. One life, not multiple lives. This is a huge paradigm thing in our culture is that we've got, well, there's my religious life, and then there's my family life, and then there's my personal life, and then there's my fitness life, and then there's my work life, and then there's my... No. I have one life. One. And it's all worship. 
And it's all for Jesus. And every aspect, every dimension of my life is my connection, my relationship with the Lord. And everything I do and everything I say and everything I have and everything I want and everything I pursue and everything I think about and everything that my whole life is about Jesus, period. Every minute of my day, every breath that I breathe is given to the one who bought me with a price. It means if I'm working a job, I'm working for Jesus. Even if it's scrubbing out the fryer or whatever you do. I don't know how it's, I mean... You want to make sure that you've turned the fryer off before you try scrubbing it. Just FYI. <laughs> when I worked, I worked at McDonald's for a while, like 10 weeks or something. And uh, it wasn't that long. I was there, it was leading up to Master's Commission, and I just needed to make some cash real quick, and my friend was a manager at McDonald's, so I started working there, and I told him, I'm only going to be here until Master's starts, because I'm not allowed to have a job my first year or whatever, and he was like, that's fine. So I worked there, and while I was there, I, I wasn't on, I wasn't at the store when this happened, but it happened while I worked there. Somebody dropped their ring into the fryer and without thinking just reached in to grab it. Yeah. And give a whole new meaning the word chicken fingers. Um just <laughs> Anyway, don't do that. Um, so, um, out of when our lives belong completely to the Lord, out of that fountain flows pure waters. This is, this is why we need to flip it around. It can't just mean clean. Because you can live beautifully, morally clean and not be 100% devoted to Jesus. And I know a bunch of people who do. Who they don't, they can check the boxes. And not just the three I mentioned before. I mean, they, they tithe. And they, you know, they, they don't go see movies with bad words or, or naked people on them. They, you know, they don't, they don't listen to the wrong kind of music. They, they you know, you, you name it. They're just the most absolutely pure, I mean, like, in that sense, clean people you can imagine. But they aren't really 100% sold out to Jesus. In fact, what they're 100% sold out to is being able to say that they're the cleanest people you can imagine. And they think that's what it looks like to follow Jesus, but it's not. Cleanliness is a byproduct of following Jesus. It is not why we follow Jesus. It is the result of correctly following Jesus, because as we follow him, we become like him, and therefore our activity becomes clean. 
because he's clean. But cleanliness is not what we are pursuing. We're pursuing Christ. And until we have that correct, let me tell you what happens to a people who say, I want to be a clean person. And that's the first thing on their agenda. Clean people are not going to spend time with unclean people because they might make me dirty. Is that what Jesus did? Did Jesus not spend time with dirty people? This is yes, this is no. I mean, did Jesus spend time with dirty people? Yes or no? Did Jesus spend time with people who were not morally clean? Yes or no? But if your only goal in life is to be a clean person, are you going to spend time with people who are morally unclean? No, you're not. You're not because they might, they might, you know, get me dirty. Ew. Jesus was like, um, excuse me, religious community. I'm going to go hang out with prostitutes and tax collectors because it's the, it's the sick that need a doctor, not the healthy. And Jesus was using a lot of sarcasm when he called them healthy. We overlook Jesus' sarcasm in the Bible. It's quite powerful, and, and it's almost always levied at the religious community. <laughs> He's like, it's not the healthy that need a doctor. It's the sick. And they heard it. They heard the sarcasm. <laughs> They heard Jesus looking at them and saying, you're not better than these people. But they're honest about it. It is the drive for cleanliness that keeps Christians stuck in their Christian counterculture, stuck in their winter jams, in their... In their Christian artist cubby holes, sending them to see Christian only movies, sending you know yeah I don't have it. I get people really mad at me when I talk this way. You know, listening only to their Christian music radio stations. Let me say this to you: there is nothing wrong with Christian made movies. Christian, well, I mean, there's a lot wrong with a lot of Christian, movies. <laughs> but, but <laughs> they're just crappy movies. Okay, let's just be honest. Do you want to know why they're crappy movies? Can I help you with this? Well, yes. <laughs> but why? But why? Why are why are good actors not attracted to these movies? Because you can believe you better believe that they've asked better actors to be in their movies, and there are some really great actors that are in movies that are not made by Christians. Okay. Do you want to know why? Do you want to know why they're not attracted to these movies? Because the movie isn't about the story, it's about the message. And we sacrifice the story for the message and it becomes a bad movie. When the movie's about the story, which has a message, then it'll be a good movie. It'll be a movie people connect with, it'll be a movie that people are changed by. But when it's a movie that's about a message that has a story stuck on it, it's a crappy movie. Does that make sense? So look at somebody like J.R. Tolkien, who wrote one of the, a book which has been read by more people like the who knows, and some of the greatest movies ever made were made 
about his book. You know his book is about Christianity? It's about Jesus? But he said, I'm prioritizing the story because people are going to learn more about Jesus through the story than they will through my little puny message. I'm just telling the truth. There's a reason Jesus taught in stories. Because narrative teaches us something on a deeper level than lecture. Although lecture is often necessary, which is why I'm doing it right now. Anyway, that's a sidetrack. Out of a singular focus flows pure water. When every aspect of your life comes from one place, one passion, all of a sudden your motives are pure, your actions are pure, your intentions are pure. Cleanliness comes from a singular passion. We have to be more interested in following Jesus than we are in moral rectitude. That's, a, that's, that's your word for the day, rectitude. Everyone say rectitude. It means to be right, to be correct. <laughs> Use it in an email today. Um, <clears throat> when we pursue moral perfection, all we're ever going to arrive at is moral perfection. And we won't even arrive there. But when we pursue Jesus, we will be a people like Jesus. And let me help you understand this. Our lists of do's and don'ts will never really make us like Jesus on the inside. But when we pursue the character and the nature of who Jesus is, when we love him more than we love anything, we will become like him. We will be formed like him, and then we will be, we will have moral rectitude. You missed that. Rectitude means to be correct, okay? But we will have that. We will have the cleanliness. But we will also have passion for dirty people. And we will also have compassion for broken people. But people who are only pursuing a moral law have no compassion for anyone because they're using all of their energy to try and do things right. Oh my gosh, if I mess it up, I'm going to hell. Stop that. Run after Jesus. And here's the other beautiful thing. Jesus is satisfying. Being right only feels good for a fraction of a second. It does feel good sometimes, doesn't it? I always like to take those moments when I've been proved right and my wife has been proved wrong. They're very, very rare. Usually she's right and I'm wrong. But those few moments when I'm actually correct and she's forced to say, I was wrong. I love to be like, let it be written upon the stones that on this date, Rachel Hawkins hath said, April 24th, 1125, 
Rachel Hawkins have said I was wrong. It's never in it. It's, it's the one time. I just get all the clipped right now. It feels good to be right sometimes, does it not? But let me ask you, where? why does it feel good? No. <laughs> what part of me feels good because I'm right? Is it, the, it is, is it the beautiful, humble, sweet, compassionate, loving side of me that feels good because I'm right? Yep. <laughs> no, it's my big old gigantic head of pride. That's what it is. It's going, that's correct. Ah, I had it correct. That's <laughs> uh, gross. Nobody likes that person. Nobody likes the know-it-all that has to be right all the time. I mean, I like being a know-it-all, but I shouldn't. It's bad of me. It's wrong. But I'm usually right. Let me just say that. <laughs> that kind of pursuit of moral cleanliness, it makes us a worse person on the inside. It makes you ugly on the inside. Because you're pursuing yourself, you're not pursuing anyone else. It puts us on the wrong trajectory. But when we're pursuing Christ and we want to become more like Christ, and we're letting the image of Jesus shape us and change us, we might get things right every once in a while, but we will realize when we do that that was his grace and not our strength. That that was his gift and not our ability. And so we're all like, oh, God is really good. Oh, I did something right for once. Hallelujah. And when we're constantly measuring ourselves against the perfection of Jesus, can we ever get much of a big head about who we are? Doesn't matter how much we grow, we still have, you know, a ways to go. Amen? So when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, what is he saying? Blessed are those whose heart, whose passion, whose life, whose every intention and desire is set upon him. And him only. Then we shall see God. Why? Because he's the object of our pursuit. Hasn't that been how all of the other ones have worked? Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? For they should be filled. Blessed are those that mourn, for they should be comforted. Blessed are the pure in heart, those whose finish line is Jesus, because they shall see Jesus. It's a promise. It's a beautiful and powerful promise that if we will gather our affections around the fire of Jesus' heart, that he will give us himself. That we will reach the end for which we're running. That when we are pursuing God, we will find him. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. And I'm pretty sure it's actually Jeremiah 29, 10. It says, you will seek me and you will find me because you seek me with your whole heart. Jeremiah 29, 13. 13. I knew it was right there around that other one. 
You will seek me. You will find me because you seek me with your whole heart. This is what God does for a people who are wholehearted towards him. He rewards them with himself. Is there a greater reward? I want to, I want to encourage you to pursue God with everything you are. Unashamed, pursue him. Pursue him. I want to know him. The Apostle Paul said, listen, I've got a great resume, but it's all crap. He actually used a word that's a little more forceful than crap. Not kidding. I consider it all rubbish. That's where that's where our normal English translations work, but that's not what he said. He used a Greek cuss word, which is analogous to R S H word. Paul had a foul mouth sometimes. He did it on purpose. He wanted to absolutely make clear all of my accomplishments are not are less than nothing. In fact, it, they are things I don't even want anymore. They stink. They make a mess everywhere. I don't want them. I want Jesus. I consider it all rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. I'm after him. I want him. I'm interested in him. And anything that I, that I did in my own strength is going to burn. But everything he has done in and through me will last forever. I want him. I want Jesus. He's the only thing I'm after. I'm not after anybody looking at me and saying, good job, Paul. I'm not after that. I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in ever arriving at the place where I'm like, well, I did everything I wanted to do. No, I want Jesus. He's the only thing that I want. He's my sole desire. He's my sole finish line. I'm not going to stop until I reach him. I'm not going to stop until I see him. I'm not going to stop until he says, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm not interested in anything else. My whole heart, everything inside of me, all that I am and all that I have is about Jesus and nothing is going to stand in my way, and I don't care what you have to say about it. Amen? <laughs> okay, let's, let's move to verse 9. I know, I know. I said I was going to leave at 1130, but forget them. I'm having fun with Jesus right now. You guys okay? Yeah, no. Blessed are the peacemakers. <laughs> Blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus, help me. I really don't. I don't want to. Oh, Jesus, help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. They should be called sons of God. I need help because I'm pretty mad. <coughs> Not righteously. I... I my I, my attitude gets bent out of whack about our current political situation because our country doesn't understand this phrase. And and the thing is that I've been studying an alternative view of history these last few months. I'm almost thoroughly convinced that the United States of America has been the bad guy since World War II. <clears throat> 
I know we don't feel that way. We definitely weren't taught that way. But I look at our legacy around the world. First of all, it was really the Soviet Union that won World War II, by the way. Do you know that when you look at how many soldiers we lost, which was 50 million-ish, or no, I'm sorry, 405,000. 50 million is another number. We, we lost about 405,000 soldiers in World War II. The Soviet Union lost 27 million people. A third of their population died in World War II. They got to Berlin first. They had the hardest fight of anybody in the whole battle. And yet... We walk astride the world like, you're welcome for World War II. You're welcome. That was a war that had to be fought. If there was any war in the world that had to be fought, it was that one. Because we had an evil dictator that wanted to take over the planet. But ever since then, the arrogance, the bullying... We've had this big thing called a nuclear bomb that we've just held over to the world's head for the last however many years. We've gone into countries that nobody wanted us to be in. Told them what to do with their... We have taken out people that were elected by the people of their nation and put in dictators because they were friendly to the United States of America. We've done it over and over and over again, both in Latin America and in Asia. You want to know why? Because we forgot this phrase. Blessed are the peacemakers. We have been the people. We have been a people of war. The truth is we had one of our presidents, one of the greatest, one, a truly great president. Dwight Eisenhower told us when he was leaving office to not to be careful, we needed to watch out because there was a an economy of war in the United States of America that the military-industrial complex was running things in the United States of America and that we needed to make the choice to remove the military-industrial uh, uh, complex from power and restore ourselves to a different kind of economy. We didn't do it. In fact, we doubled down on the military-industrial complex, and we have done it over and over and over again. Over and over and over again, we've spent more money on the military. You know, literally half of the budget of the United States of America is spent right now on the military in one form or another. Half. Yeah, I think it'd be fair to 
strategies that work out of terrorists just go ahead and say terrorism. It's really what it is. In a way, and it's radical to say that, though, because nobody wants of course to it's think radical. that's what it is. Because we've used that word to continue to maintain the status quo. We've used the word terrorist over and over and over again since 2001. We've yeah. used the word terrorist to convince people we need to keep spending this much money. But if you take the amount of money we spend to help poor people both in this country and around the world and you put it up next to our military budget, they're not even comparable. They're not even comparable. And we ignore places that need our help when there's no good reason for us to go in there. But we tell everybody that we're a force for good in the world. No, we're a force for our own empire in the world. That's what we are. We're a force for our good in the world. Because we don't understand this phrase. Blessed are the peacemakers. Do you know who Mikhail Gorbachev is? He was the leader of the, United, the Soviet Union in the 80s. And he actually believed this phrase. Listen to the peacemakers. He really did. He said, he looked at his own government and said, we're going to stop spending most of our money on the military and we're going to start spending it on building our nation. And so he began talks with the United States and other people around the world to build, to, to encourage us and other countries to do the same. And some of those talks went really, really well. The, the president here in the United States was Ronald Reagan at the time. And some of those talks went really well, but there was an opportunity in one of those talks where Gorbachev had put on the table, what if we got rid of all nuclear weapons? And we said no. The United States of America said no. Here was the other great nuclear power in the world offering to dismantle their nuclear weapons, and we said no. We don't believe this. Our response is power up, give me a gun. Oh, I'm going to start really making people mad now. We are the most armed nation in the world by a factor of like five. There are more guns than people in the United States of America. It's true. There's something like three times more guns than people in our country. And sometimes we have been... We've actually called, we've written the word peacemaker on a gun. I want to, ah, are you insane? The only peace that that makes is when everyone's dead, there will be peace. 
I don't know if there are concealed carry people in this room or not. And I, I am in I am co- I am in complete disagreement with some people that I deeply love, but I don't see how a person who says a person who says I follow Jesus who taught me when I'm slapped on one cheek to turn the other cheek also can have a gun in their belt. That makes no sense to me whatsoever. I do not get it. I don't know who do you think you are. And usually what they say to me is, well, I, it isn't so much that I'm protecting myself as that I'm trying. I want to be available to protect the innocent. Because criminals have guns and so good people ought to have guns too. Bullcrap. Statistically, you are more likely... Someone in your family is more likely to hurt themselves with your gun than you are to ever stop anyone from hurting anyone in your family. Go look at the numbers. Do I think that countries need a military? I do. I do. I wish we didn't. I think we do. Do I think that police officers should should carry weapons? I do. Unfortunately, we live in a broken world. And yet, the the innocent should be protected. I'm not saying that's not true. And I'm saying, Homeland Security, I'm all for. But what are we doing in all these other countries? I don't understand. And do do I have massive respect for people who put their lives on the line in the the defense of our country? I I even have trouble saying that. But they, they answer the call to step into military service of our country at possibly the cost of their own lives. I have unbelievable respect for those men and women. It's their leaders I disrespect. And it's the ideas that are driving our our military all over the world that I deeply disrespect. The men and women, the, the men and women who answer the call and step up into the battle lines, I respect them like crazy. What it's an incredibly selfless act for most of them. There are some just psychopaths that enter the army because they want to kill somebody. That's true. But that's a very small percentage. Most people that enter the military do so because they want to serve their country, and this is the best way to do it, and I appreciate that. That kind of self-service I love, and I I champion. But I have a problem with the way that we were, (coughs) the way that our country is in the world. I would love for our huge military to become a force for actual peace, and not not the peace that happens after the bomb explodes. See, it says the peacemakers shall be called the the sons of God, the children of God. I want to see the United States of America choose another way. But that's on the national level. Let's start talking about ourselves. Thank you for allowing me that rant. Let me say this to you. I am fairly certain that most of you in this room hold a very different political ideal ideal than the one that I just espoused. Maybe you have family in the military. Can I ask you, please? 
prayerfully consider what I said and then go and look at the truth. Go read the histories. Go look. Go read the history of the Vietnam War. Go read the history of the Korean conflict. Go read the history of uh, our involvement in the Middle East. Go read the history and go see. Do the research. Pay attention to the Syrian conflict that's there right now that is wrecking the world and it's drawing us into, guys, I'm telling you right now, Conflict in Syria scares the bejeebers out of me, and I'll tell you why, especially when Russia is involved. Because Ezekiel 37 talks about a battle in Syria where Russia is involved. It pretty much tells us that Antichrist is going to arise out of that conflict. You know that they call him the Assyrian in Scripture? I'm not saying Bashar al-Assad or any of these guys that we know about from Syria are the Antichrist. I don't know, but I'm saying that looks real. There's a lot of echoes of some biblical stuff that this feels like end times to me. Just really does. The United States has not done anything to help. We've only made things worse. And a lot of the world watches what we've done and they just shake their heads and say, what are you thinking? But let's get beyond that. Let's talk about ourselves. How often are you a peacemaker? Because let me tell you what it takes to create peace. Let me tell you what it takes to be a peacemaker in your own personal life. Number one, it means not taking offense. That's number one. Now we can start with this. Can, can I help you? People deserve the benefit of the doubt. You know what I mean by that? Okay? If someone says something or does something either to your face or they say something to a friend of yours who is then related to you, you know, they, they, that friend comes and says, do you know what they said? That person deserves the benefit of the doubt. And what I mean by that is if you're immediately offended by something someone says, Push the pause button and have an actual human, not texting conversation with that person. Before you let yourself get hurt, before you let yourself get angry, before you start talking about them to everybody else. Well, they're always like this. Of course, they're doing that. And, blah, 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 and we all do the same thing. We don't go to the person that has hurt us in some way and say, hey, let me be honest with you. What I heard you say was this and that really hurt my feelings. We don't do that. No, we go talk to three other people who then talk to three more people and it grows out of control. And then what happens that we've got war on our hands and were we a peacemaker? No. 
let me help you with an idea. You don't know what's going on in someone else's brain at any one particular time. You don't know. Can I help you with that? And we automatically think, I know exactly what they were thinking. I know exactly where they're coming from. And, and this is what they meant. And they knew they were hurting me. Bull crap. You, they didn't know. We all think about ourselves. We don't think about everybody else. And when they said something, 99% of the time and you're hurt by it, it's not because they meant to hurt you. It's because they weren't thinking of you. And so they said it and then they hurt your feelings. I know I'm being emphatic about this, but I'm sick to death of the same bullcrap over and over again by people who are supposed to love each other. Jesus said, this is how they'll know you're my disciples, if you love one another. Is that how the world thinks about the church? Is that how the world feels about the church? Well, boy, that group of people really loves each other. No. They see us fight and bicker and backbite. They see us hate one another. Well, that's it. I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. They see us splitting off into a million different. He wouldn't let me on the worship team. So I'm hurt by that church. And I'm going to go over to this other church until they hurt me too. And people leave churches without even having a conversation with the person they were hurt by? We're better than this. We're better than this. If you want to be a peacemaker, if you, if you are dedicated to this sermon, to what Jesus said, then what you're going to do is you're going to put your own feelings, your emotions on pause. And you're going to go have a conversation with that person who you love and you're going to try and fix things. You're not just going to say, fine, good, I have an opportunity to behave badly. Woo! You hurt my feelings. I don't care. Grow up. I'm being mean today, I know. <laughs> and I've probably hurt a bunch of people's feelings already. In this thing. Come talk to me. Please. I'm serious. Come talk to me. Because I really do love you. I'm saying these things because I love you. And I'm saying these things because I want you awake to how the enemy does this to us over and over and over again. He pins us down. Well, oh, they're going to, they're a threat to me. Well, fine. I'm just going to have somebody say something careless that they don't really mean. And I'm going to hurt their feelings. And then they're going to be caught in this whole like spiral of unforgiveness and anger. And they're going to hurt five other people. It's going to be beautiful. You know, just The enemy just laughs. But when you are so in love with each other that even if they try and say something to hurt you, you interpret it in a way that they couldn't hurt you at all. And you look at somebody and say, hey, I've literally done this. <laughs> it's always fun. When somebody's mad at me or somebody's whatever, I've literally looked at them and said, you don't mean it like that, do you? And to watch them. <laughs> what? No. Because <laughs> what they wanted was... 
They wanted me to come back with a witty comeback that's going to cut them so they can cut me back so I can cut them back. That's what they wanted. They wanted turmoil. They wanted the opposite piece. They wanted war. They wanted an interpersonal war. They wanted to start something because they wanted to defeat me. That's what they want to do. Because you hurt me, so I'm going to hurt you back. Or you make me feel insecure, so I'm going to take you out. It's not being a peacemaker. Being a peacemaker says, I'm going to choose to not get offended. There's, there's that wonderful trick in our English language. We call it taking offense. We call it carrying offense. You don't have to take it. Just leave it. When are we going to start practicing leaving offense? <laughs> Dropping offense? Forgetting? You know what? If I wanted to, I could be hurt by what you just said, but I'm not going to be. Yeah. And if there's still some, if there's still a twinge there, you need to have the conversation. Hey, how many of you have had somebody come to you and honestly say, Hey, when you said this, that hurt. Because we don't do that, do we? Most of the time, we don't do that. We don't love each other enough to be honest. We don't love each other enough to say, hey, that, that kind of hurt. I'm, can you help me, please? Can I encourage you? And you are in the most rarefied air on the planet because you are right here in Master's Commission and you live with each other. And I cannot imagine how hard that is sometimes. Because when you live with people, you know, you, you know who I get most offended by and most angry with more often than anybody? It's my wife and my kids. Because I know them so well that I know the tone of their voice. Or by one look. And I rise to the bait sometimes. My daughter is seven years old. She's extremely emotional. She is. I don't even want to know what's going to happen when she's 13. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Lord. Give me grace and mercy. If we get out of the car, okay, there's six of us. We get out of the car and no one goes around to open the door for her. She will sit in the car and cry and say, you left me. And I'm just like, we didn't leave you. Everyone else opened their own door and got out of the car. <laughs> Except for you. You sat there waiting for somebody to open the door for you. The two people in the backseat don't have a door. Someone opened the door and they chose to get up and walk out the open door. But you sat next to your own door, and refuse to get out. And here's the other thing. Our doors open 
by the push of a button. <laughs> but we left you. <laughs> and I have literally said to her in those moments, nah, you left me. She's like, what? I said, I went over there and you weren't with me. You left me. I did not leave you, Daddy. You left me. No, you left me. <laughs> it doesn't work. <laughs> but don't we do that to each other all the time? Don't we do that to each other all the time? Okay, a couple of my friends go someplace and they don't call me. And you're like, they left me. No, they just didn't call you. It's not like they called you and said, hey, we're going to go do this thing and you're not invited, click. <laughs> we take that as like a barb towards us. Oh, sorry. Uh, last year, there was a relationship that was not going right. And every week, like, well, this happened and I was watching TV. Like, you guys didn't invite me. And we'd be all mad. We're like, well, I'm sorry. And, like, and then the next day, we'd watch movies. I'd call and be like, hey, what's going on? He'd be like, what's up? Yeah. He just wanted the invitation. Exactly. Or you say to somebody, you're always welcome to go with us or whatever. Yeah. And you're speaking about it around them. And they don't ever say, I want to come or show up. But they're offended at you because you did something without them. Well, we didn't invite everyone else on purpose. <laughs> I mean, you're the only person that is mad because you didn't get a personal engraved invitation. I'm saying, okay, but that's what we do. Is it not what we do all the time? We choose to take offense. Why? Because we want to make it about us. We do it. Or we see somebody, somebody walks through the room. I literally had this happen. I walked through the room. I didn't see that the person was sitting there. I walked right past them and they were like, And I was like, what? You didn't say hi to me. I didn't see you. <laughs> you walked right past me. How, Shut up. You walked right past me. I did not see. I'm so, I didn't see you. Why am I apologizing? Because I didn't happen to turn my eyes this direction. I'm not going to apologize because you jumped to the conclusion that I was trying to offend you by literally not looking at you. That is stupid. <laughs> There's one particular person in our church who is ex extraordinarily needy, okay? And this person will sit there. I'm having a conversation with someone else, and they're sitting maybe 10, 15 feet away from me, and they will say as loud as they can, well, I guess Josh doesn't want to talk to me today, to someone else. I'm dead serious. No, and the truth is, they're correct. I don't want to talk to But I'm going to. I'm going to come over and talk to them eventually. But right now I'm talking to this person. And sometimes they will say that when I'm having what is obviously an emotional conversation with someone else. Somebody's hurting. Somebody's in trouble. Somebody needs prayer. Somebody whatever. And then I got this bozo over there. Well, I guess Josh doesn't want to talk to me today. To whoever's listening in the room. I just want, I want to walk over and be like, no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I have had the conversation. I have. I've, I, I've gone over and sat with them and said, you know, I was just praying with that person because their mom just passed away and they're really upset. And when, when you said that so loudly, you interrupted our conversation. And that's rude. Please don't do it again. Because we love each other, we should tell each other the truth in love. And I didn't say it angrily to him. It's not like I threw something across the room. I just walked over and was completely honest with him and said, guess what? This can't happen again, okay? I care about you. You know I care about you. I talk to you every Sunday, and I was going to talk to you today. I just didn't get to you yet. And you were extremely rude, and that's not acceptable behavior. I was in this church, okay? few years ago and the guy I'm talking about is dead so he can't be mad (laughs) we were we were in the hallway okay we're in the hallway I was talking to your mom we were having a conversation I was talking to your mom and I hear behind me a man who was at the time an elder in the church a leader. He was in charge of a specific ministry. And he was talking to another elder in the church, a leader, in charge of a couple ministries. And he started saying things about my dad and about my dad's leadership of this church that were extraordinarily rude, extraordinarily wrong. And he's saying them loud in a group of people to another elder. To the point where I couldn't even hear what your mom was saying to me because I'm hearing this and my blood pressure is going up. (laughs) I couldn't believe these are the kinds of things that shouldn't even be said in private to one another. And he was saying it in public with a bunch of people around, not quietly. I wasn't... I was furious. I wanted to turn around, smack him across the face, and be like, watch your mouth. I didn't do that. But then the Holy Spirit brought it back to me. Because after I finished my conversation with your mouth, I, I was going to walk away and fume in private. And the Holy Spirit said to me, you're going to leave it at that? I said, what? <laughs> the Holy Spirit said, you need to go talk to him. I was like, he's 40 years older than me. <laughs> Not really. He's only maybe 20 years older than me. But here's this man that I grew up. I grew up. I grew up looking up to this man. I grew up respecting him. I still respected him. I didn't consider myself a leader of his. And the Holy Spirit's like, are you going to talk to him or aren't you? And I said, I'm not. And he said, I want you to. So don't you tell people all the time, go to the person, have the conversation. I'm like, it's not fair using my words against me. <laughs> he said, it's time for you to be an example. So I did the classic Christian trick. Okay, Holy Spirit. If he's in that office in there when I walk in, I will, and alone, I will talk to him. If not, I'm not going to talk to him. <laughs> I went in there. Dang it. 
He was in there and he was alone. So I closed the door. I sat down. I said, can I talk to you for a minute? I said, I wish I hadn't heard what you said to so-and-so, but I did. You're a leader in this church. A man that I respect. And I heard you saying things that were not appropriate. Well, the guy, I was worried because this man had a temper and I knew it. I was ready for him to stand up because he was much taller than me. I was ready for him to stand up and be like, who are you to talk to me, you little punk? But that's not what he did, to his credit. He started weeping. He said, I'm so sorry. You're right. I never should have said anything. I'm so sorry. And I was like, don't tell me you're sorry. You need to go to that other elder you were talking to me. You need to talk to him about it. One of the scariest moments of my entire life. And I'm not sharing it to like elevate myself in any way, shape, or form because Lord knows I have said horrible things. Things that I needed to repent for. What I'm saying is have the conversation. Can we love one another enough to be peacemakers? To tell one another the truth? To look each other in the eye and say, hey, you're better than that? I love you, and when you said that, it's kind of hurt. And by the way, that conversation is not to be had in order to make them pay more attention to you. The conversation is to be had in order for you to offer forgiveness and to be made whole yourself and to restore broken relationship. It's not to be had in order to have some kind of emotional, like, you know, arm behind the back against that person. Does that make sense? It's not leverage. All right, we're done. We're late. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, I pray you would, Lord, any of the stuff that was my flesh, Lord, and I know there was some of it in there. Just clean it out. I pray no one would remember it. I ask you to forgive me for it. Holy Spirit, I pray that what's true would ring true. Make us a people with one heart and wholehearted. And Lord, make us peacemakers. Teach us what it means to be peacemakers. Help us to walk in your way. Because we are the sons of God. And we want to see you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well,